God set up for Israel a king in Saul that was a king that was good to look at. A king who was head and shoulders above everybody else, who was the most handsome among all of Israel. God gave them a king like the nations had. A king to serve the people. It's interesting when you look at the story of Saul and you see his beginning. Saul being established as king comes to us in three different stories. The first story starts with Saul wandering around looking for his father's donkey and being unable to find it. After a while, he gets to where he's run out of food and he has nothing else to do. He decides to go back and the guy with him says, let's go talk to Samuel. And Saul says, we don't have anything to give him that he might tell us where the donkey is. But God said to Samuel, the man who's coming to you, I want you to anoint him. He's going to be the king. And so Saul gets anointed as the king of Israel. In the second story, Samuel's before all Israel, and he casts lots and gets down to the tribe of Benjamin, and he casts lots again till he gets to the clan and the family and gets to Saul. And everybody starts looking for Saul, who has just been chosen, and they can't even find him because he's hiding behind baggage. This is the king of Israel. Whenever he comes onto the scene, it seems as though he is a humble man. He seems like he has much humility. But the the people aren't sure. And all of a sudden, the Ammonites are oppressing the people and they're, they're seeming like they're going to come out against the people and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul and he leads the people and he unites them and they go out and they defeat the Ammonites and all of a sudden the people say, He is our king. And they love Saul. The next battle that we read about is a battle with Saul and the Philistines. And God has commanded Saul to wait until Samuel gets there to offer a sacrifice. The seventh day comes and there's no Samuel. And the people start to leave. So what else is Saul going to do? He offers the sacrifice. And about that time, Samuel shows up. And Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Uh Uh-oh. Saul is king, but God's not happy with him because he's not keeping the command of the Lord. So God says that he's going to take away the kingdom from Saul and going to establish a man 
who is after his own heart. He's seeking him out. As the story continues, you read about Saul's son, Jonathan, who seems like he would be a great selection, but Saul messed up. So it can't be Jonathan. He's a great warrior. He seems like a man who is faithful, who who trusts in God. But because of Saul, Jonathan can't be king. You keep studying, you keep reading in the story of Saul, and you get to another battle. This time, God has commanded Saul to go out against the Amalekites. And he says to Saul, when you go out against them, I want you to completely wipe them out. The the women, the children, I want you to kill everybody. And I want you to kill all their animals. I want you to slaughter everything. It's complete wipeout. Because of their sin that they've committed against Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. The Amalekites, we just studied this in Exodus, were knocking off all of the people in the back of the crowd of, of the Israelites. And God is judging the Amalekites. Well, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and it's not good. The Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. God's not happy with Saul because as it turns out, when Samuel arrives at the scene, Saul says, or Samuel says, "Why have you not obeyed the commandment of the Lord?" And Saul says, "I have obeyed the command of the Lord." And Samuel says, "Why do I hear sheep bleeding in my ears?" What's that sound in my ears, Saul? And Saul says, I've kept Agag, the king of the Amalekites, but the people have kept all these animals to the best that the Amalekites had, and we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. And Samuel says, God wants you to obey Him more than He wants your sacrifices. God's more interested in you doing the things that He says than than He is in some thoughtful act that you have as you're disobeying Him. There's a big, dramatic scene that comes out. As Saul makes all these excuses, acts as though he is confessing, but then Samuel goes away and he says, No, you got to go with me. we got to show the elders that you're on my side. So Samuel goes up and, and he's there with Saul at the elders. He says, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And he cuts Agag to pieces. What a graphic scene that it gives us. After this, In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 34, it says, Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. The story is about to to make a dramatic shift. Saul is now the king. He's a king like the nations. He's a king who is appealing to the hearts of the men and the women of the nation. But he's a king who has rejected God. And now God is saying to Samuel, I've rejected him from being God because he won't listen to to me. And Samuel seeing all of this unfold. And we see Samuel angry. He's the prophet and he's the judge who has established Saul. He's angry about this king that has been made king to replace God. Who is now disobedient to God. Who is now unraveling all of Samuel's life work. He spent all his life helping Israel to be faithful. Helping Israel to turn their hearts back to God from the sin that they were in. And it's all coming unraveled at the hands of Saul. Saul is now king of Israel, but Saul will not do as God commands. What do you think the people are going to do? So Samuel's grieved over the consequences of the sin that's going to happen in the future. It's inevitable. And he's upset about the sin of Saul. The man who looked like he just fit the part. He is the king. He looks like the king. He has united Israel. He has fought the battles for Israel. But he has disobeyed God. Hosea said that God gave Israel this king, Saul, in his wrath. But here in chapter 15, we see that God has now decided to give Israel a king in his grace. He's going to be graceful and merciful to Israel and provide them with a king that is after his heart, a king of his own choosing that he has sought out. So he tells Samuel, stop grieving. Move ahead. God's upset about Saul too, but God knows that the future is bright. He makes a way of hope for his people. So he tells Samuel, get over it. You have work to do. Go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, because I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Well, as we keep reading the story in chapter 16, verse 2, it says, Samuel said to God, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. So Samuel did all what the Lord commanded, and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? 
And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons. And he invited him to the sacrifice. So Samuel comes to this town of Bethlehem on a mission to anoint Israel's next king. But before he goes, he talks to God and he says, Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) I'm in Ramah. You're asking me to go to Bethlehem. And and that requires going through this little city right here. This is Gibeah. This is where Saul lives. (laughs) And he's the king now. And the people like him. He has given them what they desire, even if it's in disobedience to God. He will kill me. There's a reason why they've separated and they've decided not to be around each other anymore. Saul's power has grown and Samuel fears his power is waning. So God says, take a sacrifice with you to Bethlehem and let that be uh, a concealment of the true reason why you're there. So he does it. And when he gets there, the elders are afraid of him. You see how that would encourage him to, to know he's still judged. He's, he's old at this point, but he's still judged. They're afraid of him. They've probably heard about him chopping Agag into pieces. <laughs> and that's pretty frightening. <laughs> he's, he's still the judge and prophet of Israel. He still has God on his side, so the elders are afraid For him to be there. After all, why would Samuel come to Bethlehem? Bethlehem's not really known for anything significant that's good. Up until this point, all that we've heard about about Bethlehem is from Judges, at the end of Judges. And none of those are good things. You have a Levite who is unfaithful and offering sacrifices to idols. And then you have a concubine who is unfaithful, and she gets abused and chopped into pieces. So, I mean, people from Bethlehem aren't well known. So why are you coming to Bethlehem? Is this some kind of judgment? What's going on? But Samuel relieves their fears by saying, I'm coming with a sacrifice. I'm I'm here peaceably. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice. And he goes to the house of Jesse, and he invites them to the sacrifice... And he consecrates Jesse and his sons, who Jesse has brought. In verse 6, it says, When they came, all these sons of Jesse, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen these. God has said, 
I have provided myself a king from among the sons of Jesse, and Jesse's passing all his sons before Samuel, and God's not pleased with any of them. Eliab comes before Samuel, and Samuel's like, well, here we go. This is a man who is comparable to Saul. This is a man who looks like he can be king. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. It's got to be the firstborn. But God says no. It's a key verse. It's very important that we understand the words of verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Not like he rejected Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Saul and Eliab are very comparable, apparently, (laughs) in the way they look. And maybe all of Jesse's sons are comparable. But if none of them are acceptable, then who will be anointed? Who has God chosen that He sent Samuel to Bethlehem on this mission? We keep reading. Samuel says to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We see that God doesn't think like we think. That's a very important message from this whole story. Samuel thinks Eliab is the guy. And so, it's not. It's just not. All these sons pass before him and it's none of them. And then we come to find out that Jesse thought it must be one of these sons because there's no way it could be that son. He can go and tend to the sheep. He's not going to be worth anything. And we find out that that boy who is off tending to the sheep is the one who God is seeking to anoint as king. That boy was off doing his job, tending the sheep of his father, while the judge comes into town and is going to bless someone from the house of Jesse. All his brothers get to come before the judge and be consecrated, and they all get to go to this sacrifice. This is a rare event in Bethlehem. But not David. He's off tending to the sheep about his father's business. He's the runt of the litter. He's the youngest. Nobody sees him as being worth much of anything. Do you think his brothers thought much of him? Do you think his father did, leaving him out like this? 
Nobody sees Him as the one who will one day be King David. The greatest conqueror of all Israel history. It says in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. You get the picture from Saul's anointing that it's some flask that gets poured over him. But in this case, it's a horn full of oil that gets poured over this boy's head, being covered in this oil. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. God has bound Himself to this boy who will be king one day. There's nothing about him that makes us think he's the king. He's got to be the king. But God knows he is. This is the David that we read much about in the New Testament. The David who will one day be used as the son of David, right? To describe Jesus. His throne is one that will be established forever. And here he is, tending sheep, while his brothers get to go to the sacrifice. It's like the show. Have you ever seen this show, The Britain's Got Talent or The Americans Got America's Got Talent? Where there's this person that comes out and like a Susan Broyle, right? She comes out and everybody's like, what is she doing here, you know? You look at them and you think, there's nothing, there's no way. And then this great, booming, acapella voice comes out of her that's the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. And you're just in tears thinking, what in the world was I just thinking? (laughs) A second ago, I thought this lady had no chance. And now here she is and she has the most beautiful voice. David has made is, is going to make that kind of change. At the first, you, you see him and there's nothing to behold. He's, a, he's from Bethlehem. Can anything good come out of Bethlehem? He's the youngest of all his brothers and he's off tending to the sheep. He smells probably like sheep manure and here he comes. Everybody has to wait for him to come and here he comes and now the brothers get to watch as he's anointed with oil by the judge. And the prophet. It's an interesting and amazing story. From this day forward, God will be with him, and we'll see great triumph come from David as he slays Goliath. But we'll see a lot of trouble in David's life, a lot of suffering. Over 20 years are left in Saul's reign. Over 20 years are left. And, and David is going to sit on the sidelines. And in fact, he's going to be chased by Saul for much of his life. But one day he will rise to power. God will give him victory over all his enemies. He will be the greatest conqueror that the world had ever known. His throne will be established forever and will become a symbol eventually for Jesus. None of the earthly kings that follow Him will ever measure up to David. 
There's three applications that I want to get out of this story. First of all, and it's obvious, God doesn't choose based on outward appearance. David is not someone who is impressive to look at, right? There's nothing about him that they think he's got to be the king. But God chooses him because he knows that his heart is not like Saul's heart. God chooses David, an ordinary, common guy. He's not head and shoulders above anybody else. You look at a crowd, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of the crowd. But God chooses David to be that great king over Israel. When we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus has chosen very ordinary and in fact, often despised people to be His disciples. You think about the fishermen and the tax collectors that He chose to be His disciples. These are Galileans, right? Uneducated. But Jesus is choosing them as those who will be His disciples. And the same goes today. God doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't matter if you're ugly. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're the most beautiful person on the earth. It doesn't matter if you look common like everybody else. God doesn't care. He's not looking at you and thinking, Wow, that's a sight to behold. He just doesn't care. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26... Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't care what you look like, where you're from. He doesn't care whether you have influence, whether you're powerful, whether you're educated. It doesn't matter to God. God's not looking at that and thinking, well, He's got to be on my team. He just doesn't care about that. We do. (laughs) We look at that and think that's important, but God does not. Actually, those who look most promising reject God. Not many wise. Not many of noble birth. We see Saul let that power go to his head and he rejected God. He looked great. He looked the part. He looked like the king. But he wasn't a good king. And God rejected him. We see the same with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They looked great. They looked pious. They looked holy. But they were not. 
We have to look beyond what we see. We have to look beyond what we see. It's deceiving to think that what I see is what I'm getting. God does not look at us that way. And we have to be careful not to look at others that way. Especially not when we choose leaders. Jesus said that they will come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. They are whitewashed tombs. They're dead inside, but outside they just look fantastic. Don't be deceived by what you see. What you see is not what you're going to get. The next thing that we can learn from this story is that God looks at the heart. Saul has a heart problem. Saul thinks it's better to do what the people want and to compromise what is true than to do what God says. God knows. God sees his heart problem. God sees his disobedience. His excuses don't cover up the truth about Saul. But David is a man after God's heart. As we study David, we're going to see a tender-hearted man. A man who, once he's corrected, immediately says, I repent. I am guilty as charged. I don't want to be away from God's presence. I don't want to be rejected by God. His relationship with me is the most important thing to me. He loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And when he finds himself having failed, he wants to correct it. He wants to make a change. Do we love God like that? Do we love God with all our hearts? Jesus said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Those Pharisees looked like they were doing what was right. They were honoring God with their lips. They were showing up to church services every day, every week. But they were not loving God with their hearts. Their hearts were far away from God. Their hearts were entwined with the world and the things of the world rather than the things that are of God. A terrifying passage is found in Romans chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, where it tells us that God is going to judge the secret things of our hearts. He's going to judge based on what we have inside of us. And He can see what's inside of us. It's terrifying. But at the same time, it's also encouraging. God knows 
when our hearts have been transformed. He can see the heart that's like David's heart that was wrapped up in sin, but once it was uh, confronted, he said, I repent. He knows that kind of heart. He knows the one who desires to do the will of God. And whenever we sin, God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts condemn us. And if I were to kill Uriah the Hittite and to marry his wife, I might have a heart that says, I can never be okay in God's sight. But God knows that heart. And God is able to overcome and be better than our own hearts. He's greater than our hearts. It's a beautiful picture in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20. God knows what's in my heart. The third application that we have in this text is that Jesus is the ideal person. And you're like, wait... (laughs) Jesus is the ideal person. When we read the story of David, what we learn from it is all about Jesus. Of all the Old Testament lights that shine brightly, that show us Jesus, it could be said that none shine brighter than David. Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are, to be, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Isaiah 53 verse 1 through 3, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Is this talking about David? No. Sure sounds like David. But these are prophecies about Jesus. Jesus is like David in this way. He's not going to be like a Saul. He's not going to be like an Eliad. He's not going to be someone that you look at and think, Oh wow, he's got to be king. Whenever he comes onto the scene... There's nothing about Him that makes us think this is the guy. He spends 30 years of His life completely ordinary. And nobody thinks this has got to be the Son of God. He's off being a carpenter. 
We're even told that he's rejected on multiple accounts because of this. In Mark 6, 2-3, it talks about him being a carpenter and the son of Mary and, and the brother of all these sisters and all these brothers here. We know him. This can't be the Messiah. He's just one of us. In Matthew 11, it points out that he's not like John. He's not pious in in that he's not abstaining from all these drinks and all these things that make him extra religious. He's eating and drinking. He can't be the Messiah from outward appearance. There's no way. He's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. Can the Messiah be a Galilean? Can the Messiah be from Nazareth? No way. Messiahs don't suffer. There's nothing about Him that would make you think this is the guy. Just like David. There's nothing about Him. And we find out He is the eternal David. He is the David that will reign on a throne for all eternity. And we find out that He has a heart that is Fully devoted to the will of God. Jesus is the ideal person for God to choose to reign over all of us because of His heart. Jesus has a heart that loves God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is fully devoted to the will of God So devoted that when tempted, He responds with Scripture. So devoted that He's he's allowing Himself to be punished and persecuted and killed by the people that God wants to save. He loves. Like David loves. He is a man after God's own heart. In all of this, we learn to evaluate our own hearts. We may look great, but that doesn't matter. I may look like I have everything put together. My life may look perfect. But that doesn't mean that God's satisfied with me. I could fool everybody else around me. I could make everybody happy like Saul did. But that doesn't mean God's happy with me. We have to evaluate our hearts to see if we have a heart that's seeking to be popular, that's seeking to win the hearts of others and to compromise the truth. Or do we have a heart that wants to do the will of God? Are we excited about God's ability to see in our hearts, knowing that He's greater than our hearts? Are we devoted to pleasing God? I hope we all are. And if we're not, I hope we can learn from this story that God desires us to be that way. If you desire to be that way and you realize that God has set up up Jesus on an eternal throne, that God has allowed through Jesus... For us to live as blessed people even if we suffer in this life. Even if our 
Outward appearance is terrible and we're persecuted or we're punished in this life. If you realize that God doesn't care about any of that, but that God wants you to have a heart that loves Him and you want that heart. Make that change. When you fall down as David did, pick up, keep going. God knows, God loves, God cares, God wants to help. Keep going. If anybody here has not obeyed the gospel, and you know what you need to do, you know that you haven't yet confessed Him as Lord and decided to make a change in your own life. You know that you haven't been washed in the waters of baptism. And you know you need to do that. We want you to come. Please come as we stand in the